0: Hi, I'm Steven Herrera, and this is Herrera on Hollywood. Today, I am interviewing Jeff Quitney. Jeff is a director known for the sci-fi film Illegal Alien, as well as the horror films Iced and Beyond the Door 3. In 1993, he directed the drama film Lightning in a Bottle, which won the top prize at the Houston Film Festival. After a brief theatrical run, Lifetime Channel bought it and aired it 77 times. After directing films, he wrote for several animated television series, including Animaniacs, Road Rovers, Cow and Chicken, and Hysteria which he conceived. In 1995, he won a Daytime Emmy Award for his work on an episode of Animaniacs, which was produced by Steven Spielberg. After his work as a director and writer ended, Jeff started a new career as a teacher. Jeff, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure, happy to be here. So let's start by talking about how you started as a film director, can you tell the story of of how you started as a director? Uh, it's a long story, so I'll try to
1: to edit the, uh, the you know we'll use film language here. I'm going to edit it down, uh, and it it started in college. Uh, well, I'll I'll even take it further back. When I was a kid, I had I had a an eight millimeter Brownie movie camera. My dad gave me when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I'd make these little short films with the kids in the neighborhood and, and, uh, fell in love with doing, I mean, I knew I was, I had a feel for it because I was obsessed and I would get these things cut together and then air them for the neighbors and little movies. So I had that in the back of my mind. However, um, when I went to college, I went to UC Berkeley here in California and majored in comparative literature and then ended up with a master's in English. But the time while I was there, I was taking film courses <laughs> and learning how to edit and and uh, learn cinematography and worked on local projects and. Um, and then when I graduated, uh, I joined a group of filmmakers in San Francisco and we worked for about a couple of years, two or three years making each other's movies. And it was during that time that I shot this short film um, called Illegal Alien. It was a, a parody of of, um, of the film Alien. And a little story that goes with that. I mean, we really had a blast making it. I, I don't know if any people in your audience or filmmakers, they know what I mean. Filmmaking can be a lot of fun if you're just doing it, you know, for fun and not for a living. And so uh, we worked on this film, I was directing, and then we had about 10 people all pitching in, working for free, and uh, it, it turned out okay. It was a 22 minute film, but what I did was, I knew the producer of Ridley Scott's film, and um, I sent it to him in Hollywood. I was still living in San Francisco and he got the film and he said, you, you need to come down here. I need to meet you. And so um, I'm I'm blanking out on the producer's name. So you, your audience could look it up. Whoever produced um, Alien, uh, right on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, I met with him in his office and uh he asked me if he could send the film to ridley and i said of course so i guess he's it's probably sitting on his shelf somewhere right now so this was right after alien came out it was around 1980 in there or so when we did that film and the moot and alien came out in 79 i think so that opened up some doors for me i got a job uh at roger corman's company um and that uh, back then called New Horizons is the company that all these great filmmakers got their starts at, um, including James Cameron. And there's a story that goes with that because um, I had that little film and uh, was doing all kinds of jobs, including production assistant, and you know learning how to make movies the Roger Corman way, which is with no money and uh, everybody pitching in, which is all I've really known. Um, And I got a job offer by the producer who um, produced Cameron's first film, Piranha 2. Cameron had just been there before I got there, but The producer, uh, Ovidio Asanidis, an Italian producer, had got him to do Piranha 2. That was, according to Cameron, a disaster. But I had decided, this is somebody I want to work for, who knows? Um, Ovidio hired me to write several scripts for him, and then he saw my little movie uh, and he also in that interim, while I was writing scripts for him, I made another feature film called Iced. Which uh, so I was writing for Ovidio in Italy, but came back and did Iced, and uh, which I can talk about endlessly. But to, to make a long story short, Ovidio saw Iced and he said, "Here's a guy who made a film for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars." My kind of guy, you know. <laughs> so he hired me to do Beyond the Door Three, which is uh, a, a feature that was about a hundred times bigger budget than Iced was. It was that's another story too. Okay,
0: so this is a great story about how you got started in directing. We've already talked about right. Illegal Alien, your short film that was a parody of Alien from Ridley Scott, right? And then we've already touched on Iced. Now I want to tell. The audience that I met you at an event, a magazine signing event for Delirium Magazine, and it was at Dark Delicacies. Mm -hmm. And the reason you were there was because there was a feature story in the magazine about Iced, and it was celebrating the 30th anniversary of Iced. So Iced is a horror film with a unique setting. Unlike other slashers, which take place on college campuses or summer camps, Iced takes place on a ski resort. And I know that the filming location was Utah. Can you talk more about the origin of Iced? Yes. um, It's actually
1: quite a story. Um, I'm not sure how I lived through it, actually. But anyway, it was my first feature-length film. And so... um, I met um, Joe Johnston, who was the writer of the script originally called uh, Blizzard of Blood, which I think is a great title, I wish we could have kept it, but that's another story, Uh, Blizzard of Blood. And he knew my short film, um, the one illegal alien. And, but he met me th- because I was working at a, the same company where he was working for Roger Corman and New Horizons Pictures. He'd done Slumber Party Massacre. So the cast was made up entirely of his friends from that movie. And then he wrote this script. He asked me, cause we hit it off. He was taking a huge risk cause I hadn't done a feature um and so i took this thing on and we went to utah in january i think it was 87 i want to say and uh, shot this movie in the dead of winter which is a nightmare you know you don't want to do that but we wanted authentic snow in the snow story um the script was basically formulaic, you know, you've seen it before a bunch of uh, young people get together at a ski resort and they're started, they get killed one by one in awful ways and who's the murderer, and you got to watch the movie to find out who the murderer is. Um, So directing it was near, it was uh, it was extremely fun. I had a good time, everybody was having fun, but we had about $150,000 to make this movie, believe it or not, it had 18 days to shoot it in. And every, i I storyboarded it. I worked on this like crazy in advance. And then I realized that you can have the greatest ideas in the world, but if you don't have the money to to fulfill them, then you're out of luck. So I had all these scenes conceived, which I think would have been fantastic. Would have made the movie awfully good, but we couldn't do them. Uh, There's a scene, for example, in the movie where, and this is in that magazine article, because they used my storyboard in that article, um, where one of the young women gets killed with an icicle. So the bad guy grabs her, and plunges this icicle into an eye. Now that sounds all lovely and fine. Let me tell you, when you're making the movie, you're not really experiencing the horror of it, particularly because it's all, you're just trying to figure out how to make it work. But I needed to have a dummy head and have this thing go through and they couldn't do it. And we ran out of time. We had to go to the next location. I go, oh no, this is like a great scene. So all you see in the movie is the icicle coming down towards her and we cut away. And it's that kind of cop out that, you know, uh, really, but we get to see her later sitting in a car with this icicle in her (laughs) eye, which we, managed to, to get a fake icicle and, and install it and you know fix it up and it was pretty funny <laughs> it's that
0: kind of stuff and that shot there's a picture of it in the magazine article and right. when you're watching the movie that still is actually from the next day in the story and it's just funny because the icicle still has not melted no,
1: and that's another thing that drove me crazy because I complain. This is the people think that the director's an idiot, but let me just tell you, you've got a crew, you've got fifteen minutes to get the shot, and I'm and we can't get a real icicle installed on her face with the blood and all that because uh, it just simply we could they couldn't figure out how to do it, so they did it. They did a kind of uh, extemporaneous simple method
0: and once again i'm like going oh boy (laughs) so this movie is great on many levels but firstly (laughs) because it's authentic like you said it takes place in utah and you were shooting in january of 87 the dead of winter and you know it's january because if you look at the beginning of the movie when they're inside of a bar at the ski resort you can see decorations that say happy new year yeah yeah so going back to the kills, I wanna talk about the first kill in the movie that involves a snow machine. I'm wondering if you could tell us what was that scene supposed to look like? Yeah, this is another example of me going,
1: are you kidding me? I get on location, they've got this thing and we know, they know, everybody knows what's supposed to happen. They have my storyboard. We have had meetings before. I I tell them what I need, what we need to have happen. And we get there and this thing doesn't really move. (laughs) It's supposed to chase this guy down and run him over. And I said, are you kidding? What are we gonna do? And so we'd shot it the best I could. And I told them this didn't work. We're cutting the scene. So in the post-production, which is a whole other story, it ended up back in the movie because I think they were just trying to pad it with everything they had. There wasn't much left to cut out. (laughs) And I was so embarrassed by that.
0: But this is filmmaking at its low end. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about the cast in this film. Two of the people in the movie were in Slumber Party Massacre. So you had Deborah DeLisso, who was one of the main characters in Slumber Party Massacre, as well as Joseph... A Johnson, yeah. Joe Johnson was my boss. Technically, he hired me.
1: Joe, uh, was one of the actors. I think there were a couple more, maybe Elizabeth Gorsey might have been in it too. And Lisa Loring, Lisa Loring, who everyone knows from what the Adams family, yes. And uh, I was a little shocked when I when she showed up, she wasn't
0: the little girl I remembered. <laughs> So what was it like working with these actors? Many of them were new actors.
1: Yeah, they really weren't experienced actors, but you know, none of us was experienced. This is my first film. Everybody working on it was a novice. It was not much more professional than the student film I had done uh,
0: before. So a little bit more involved. So were some of the Older actors or more experienced actors like uh, Joseph Johnson and Deborah DeLisso, were they able to help lift the performances of the other actors? Did they get along well off camera? Yeah, i would worked with actors in college and
1: had um, done a lot of acting myself, took acting workshops. So I had some skills on hand to work with them. And yes, Joe was a great leader. He was uh, wonderful to work with, a nice guy. And and and, uh, and he really took them all under his wing. And, and, and that's why I think it was a lot of fun to make the film because we basically, I think we had more fun making the film than anyone's gonna have watching it. Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I don't know. I think there's a okay. big audience. This film has become a cult favorite. I know, I'm fully aware of that. (laughs) So I want to talk about the release of the film. I know that you shot it back in 87. And then when you wrapped, you went back to Los Angeles, you left Utah, went back to LA, and then about a year and a half later, it was finally finished and there was a theatrical premiere for it, right?
1: Yeah, well, no, let me tell you, that there was a lot of drama involved and it was kind of a sad Scoot story, but it's fitting in a way because of the type of movie we made, but the executive producer um, and his produ- line producer partner got into some real trouble with uh, some of the other people in the company um, Joe Johnson was telling me a little bit about their problems of people not getting paid and this and that was going on. I got paid, so I was happy about it. But there was trouble, and uh, and this is a true story. The the one of the people in the company hired two hitmen to take out the executive producer. He was coming out of the, that very office that I've been in many times to go to his car and somebody shot him and I'm not making this up they shot him with a bow and arrow
0: this was actually crossbow. mentioned in the article
1: yeah it's with a crossbow it's a true story last that i heard he was on life support the eventually um the people were all arrested the hitman and also the accomplices and the person who ordered the the killing, they all went to trial and I don't know where they are today. But what happened as far as I'm concerned was this happened immediately after we wrapped. And the, the original film, this is back in the days when we use film, uh, was sitting in cans in Park City, Utah, I think. And um, meanwhile, the two producers fled. I mean, one was in the hospital and the other one fled. He disappeared. And so there were some people that hadn't been paid, especially the first assistant director. So he was holding the film for ransom. I suddenly took it upon myself. I took, uh, went out and got a, a friend of a friend who was a film industry attorney who put up the money to rescue the film, he paid off the debts, paid for the film to be shipped to, to Hollywood, asked me to work on in the post production. We hired uh, an editor. We we, we hooked it to Photochem, uh, which is a post production company in North Hollywood. We um, we we um, we put this film together but it took some time to get the the film cans. That's where all the time got eaten up as I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna get this thing. I wasn't about to put the money up and do it myself. I wish I had. I was a original part owner because of that and I've never been paid.
0: (laughs) So they they did a cast screening of it after you did the final cut, right? No, the, I, I, you know, Joe
1: disappeared too. He fled to Italy. Everybody concerned with that movie disappeared. Um, I lost touch with them. Nobody reached out to me. I I think they were all scared, honestly, as I was (laughs) too, but we got the film put together and the guy, his name was Michael Fiber, he, who produced this film, ultimately, sold it to Prism Entertainment, which is a kind of a a video company in those days, in the 80s, and they took off from there, so it never had a theatrical screening.
0: Oh, okay. But it was picked up by Prism Entertainment and released on VHS. Yes. And since then, it has not had an official DVD or Blu-ray release. No. And I really hope that a company like Vinegar Syndrome will release this title on Blu-ray Disc. Yes, they. I, I
1: agree. They've actually contacted me several times and they they would like to make me a partner if I can get the darn original film, but we can't find it. Nobody knows where it is. Oh, Not so they have them. reached out to you.
0: If I find that film, I'm going to be rich. <laughs> Okay, so now now that we've talked about Iced, I wanna move on and talk about Beyond the Door 3. Right. And that is a unique supernatural horror film about a group of college students traveling to Yugoslavia to see a local ritual, Uh, but there's more to it than that. And I'm gonna let the viewers discover that. But this film was originally called A Muck Train and it was shot in Belgrade, Serbia. And it features some genuinely creepy scenes aboard this train that's possessed. Can you talk about the origin of this film and some of the challenges? I'd love to. Uh,
1: That was a big adventure in my life. It was really a considerably big production compared to Iced. And it was Iced ultimately that got me that job. Ovidio saw that, and that was when he he already knew me from writing for him. I'd written a number of scripts for him, but when he saw that, he thought, well, okay. I pitched the original idea to him, and it was based on a Jersey Kosinski novel called uh, The Painted Bird, and it was about a young man who goes wanders into an eastern european forest and finds himself back in the 13th century and and i like that concept and he is it is absolutely terrifying what happens to him it's a great novel it's a wonderful work of literature so a video hears that And he says, well, what can we do with that? And I said, well, why don't we have a bunch of, because I just announced, which was about a bunch of kids getting killed on a ski trip. I said, well, why don't we have these college students doing a field trip to Yugoslavia? And they go back in time there and they, they meet with devil worshipers and all that kind of stuff that you would find in a superstitious medieval village. And he loved it because he'd made a fortune on the original Beyond the Door, he told me the story on how he invested one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on that film and made twenty five million on it. So he's trying to wow. trying to duplicate that. Uh, the problem for me was that I wanted it to be pretty straightforward, real horror of going into another world of, of um, you know, a, a medieval thinking you know that that barbarism that you might find there with backwardness and that appealed to me but he had just seen a movie called The Runaway Train he says well we got to have a train in this because I want to train and I said how are we going to do that <laughs> said, it doesn't make any sense Ovidio doesn't care if anything makes any sense His he, his movies are like your nightmares they're just jumbled images and ideas that he doesn't care about explaining or making sense of anything. So I sketched out the original script and then later on another person, um, Sheila Goldberg, uh, wrote another version of my original script. But um, so he he said, do you want to direct it? I said, are you kidding me? This would be so much fun. He says, well, I can do this film in Yugoslavia for pennies compared to what it would cost if we shot it here in Italy. Um, you know, you can get extras to work for a dollar a day there. They just don't have any union problems or any of that. And everything is so cheap. The hotels that we stayed in and we got a steam train for a week. We could do anything with which would have normally cost a fortune, we got it for next to nothing. Um, It was originally called The Train, because we didn't have a title, it was just a working title, title, The Train. Beyond the Door 3 was added much later when the film distribution company took it over. And they were just, you know, capitalizing on another successful couple of movies. Um, So, uh it was really uh, quite an experience because at that time, Yugoslavia was in the midst of a civil war. Um, there were demonstrations going all the time. There were uh, battles going on in villages, skirmishes. In fact, when we would go out to shoot on location, the local... Government gave us militia. These, these armed military guys would come out with machine gun nests, plant them around our location to oh. protect us while we were shooting. And that's amazing. how it was. It was amazing. Uh, and uh, I mean, I was pretty scared. It was pretty nerve wracking. And then they were telling me, you know, I met with the ambassador, the American ambassador, while we were there, had dinner with him. And he was saying, well, they're probably going to shut down the airport. So we're leaving. So he and his wife had their bags packed, wow, ready to go. And I said, "Wait a minute, we still have a couple weeks of shooting left to do." <laughs> and I, I said, well, "That's not good." He says, "Well, if you have to stay, um, you know, you can call here. We'll, you know, we'll do what we can do." But they said they might shut the airport down, so we won't be able to get out. Um, It was under those conditions that we shot that movie.
0: That sounds like it was very high pressure
1: conditions. To say the least. (laughs) And one more footnote. Before I flew on the plane to Yugoslavia, I called James Cameron. He was shooting The Abyss at the time for 20th Century Fox. I just picked up the phone and I called 20th Century Fox, got the main (laughs) switchboard and I said, could you put James Cameron on the phone? And she said, "Um, who's calling, please? Please." And I said, just tell him it's Jeff Quitney. I'm making a movie for Ovidio Asanidis. And she said, okay, I'll tell him that. 30 minutes later, he calls me back. He was on the set and he stopped shooting to call me back because he wanted to tell me, don't make the movie. Ovidio's crazy. you will have a nightmare. Don't do it.
0: And that was in the article in the Delirium magazine as well.
1: Yeah, yeah it's it one of my favorite stories. And, he, you know, he he was fired two weeks into Piranha 2. And he got, he told me this whole thing on the phone, why I wow. shouldn't do the movie. He, was, he says, Ovidio takes over. He fired me. I stood on the sidelines watching Ovidio ruin my movie. And then I got, a, I got sick, he said. He had a 102, 103 degree, degree temperature, stuck in his hotel. He said Ovidio had cut off his per diem wow. and he was, it was a horrible experience. But I said, wait a minute. But then didn't you take the finished product to Orion Pictures? And based on that film, he got the job for Terminator. <laughs> so I said, that seems like a pretty good deal to me. And he says, well, don't you have any other projects you can do? I said, no, this is the only film I've been offered." And he says, well, just watch out for so-and-so and so-and-so. And he gave me all this advice.
0: Yes, I remember in the article that you said, you James Cameron warned you not to be involved, but you said that you needed the experience, so you did it anyway. That's right. Absolutely. So I want to tell our audience that Beyond the Door 3 is available on Blu-ray disc from Vinegar Syndrome, and you can purchase it on VinegarSyndrome.com. Right now, Vinegar Syndrome is having its halfway to Black Friday sale, so it'll be a great time to purchase a copy of Beyond the Door 3 yes i like to mention that they
1: have an interview of me at the uh, on one of the discs then they did a fantastic job on that it is beautifully done
0: so the first three films that you directed were all in the sci-fi horror genre did you intend to start directing horror films or did things just work out that way well, that's a very good question. Uh, I kind of,
1: once I, I did that low budget, short, 22 minute film, Illegal Alien, because I was so jazzed with Ridley Scott's movie. When I saw Alien, I thought, this is some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen. and I And I'm a huge fan of sci-fi. So I kind of want, that's what I want to do. And once I made that film, it was kind of how I set myself on a path. You know, it's like it, I started that that train moving and that and I couldn't stop it. Um, and I that's fine. But the problem I encountered is when you when you work for people like Roger Corman or o, Ovidio Asanides, these are real these are low budget filmmakers. And that it's really tough filmmaking. It is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) That genre uh, poses lots of problems. So, you know, I love it. I I like horror films and sci-fi movies. I, I, I wished I'd gotten a big budget Cameron type movie, but that never happened.
0: But you did transition to a drama film. You directed Lightning in a Bottle in 1993. And that was a serious drama. It received praise for directing, acting, and music. I want to ask you, how did you get hired to direct that film? And then what are the memories that you have of working with Linda Carter, D. Wallace, and Martin Cove?
1: Yes, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, it's a film I'm very proud of. Um, again, low-budget film. We had $1 million to shoot that. And which was a step down from Ovidio's, which which came to about four million dollars. Although he probably didn't spend that much, but that's what it was in Yugoslavia. So, uh, the 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 film was hard for me to get because I had only sci-fi film experience, and these people were not looking for a sci-fi director, but you know, it was one of those things where I was introduced to, to them from through a friend who said I could direct, I would be a good guy for this. And I really had to do some song and dance. I had to really convince them that I could do a serious drama and work with real actors and, and instead of these young, you know, novice actors that I'd only known. And um, so it, it it eventually after, you know, Keep coming back at them, keep coming with them. Uh, I met their investors. I did a presentation. I tr- find, found clips from my movies I could show that didn't scare them off. Uh, they looked a little dubious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, I had a couple of film credits, so that helped. And plus, I was wor- willing to do the film on a budget, so that helped. And I, I, I won the I guess the uh, loyalty of the the, t- the producer and the writer. Uh, Johnny who had written the script, was also the producer. And she took a liking to me and I think she just trusted me, took a leap of faith. And um, Linda Carter, I, of course I grew up watching her in, in Wonder Woman when I was a kid, but she had reached a point in her life, in her career, when she wanted to do real serious drama. So she started had been taking uh, actors' workshops and method acting, learning how to do that, and wanted to do this kind of a movie where she could really get into uh, the raw emotion of her character. And D Wallace Stone had done The Howling and E.T. And I knew her from E.T. because she got an Oscar nomination for that because her performance was was really good. And then she did 10 with Dudley Moore and she plays this alcoholic, he meets in a bar and she is fabulous. So I knew, I thought, cause they, the producers asked me, you know, here here are the, they give me head shots, they give me lifts, they, you know, they had a casting director I worked with. And I looked at that and I thought this would be interesting cause I knew they were gonna have Linda Carter. She was the, the reason they got financing. She was on from day one before I even came on. But I thought D. Wallace Stone who plays her, her, uh, her, her foil in the film um, would be an interesting match because D. Wallace is a serious method actress. She's into it. And I thought, well, this is gonna pit two actors together. This is always a good thing because they're each trying to do their best right they're they're competing with each other to somewhat That's it's happening it's a dynamic with actors so um martin cove was one of the many people we auditioned and he was a kind he plays a very creepy lawyer husband in the film he's a bad guy convinces his wife basically not to come forth and tell the truth about a car accident and her guilt in it and he's he's a slimy guy. and Martin was really good at that. Uh, and he and and Linda agreed to you know she had to have the uh, the final okay. she was going to be playing his wife. so he came on. And then the rest of the characters were people I had auditioned during um, you know during the pro the pre-production process.
0: And the experience of making this film, how did it compare to making the low-budget horror films?
1: Well, it was a completely different experience. It was purely actors acting without special effects or, I mean, there was a car accident and a big deal, right? That was one nice work. But the rest of the film was just interior scenes with people talking. And I really relished that it was, uh, it would gave me a fresh new challenge. But at the same time I had, there were issues like there are uh, on uh, every movie. There are personalities that clash, there's tempers that arise, there are disagreements on what should be done on this or that. So making movies is is a lot of work. It is not as glamorous as people might think it's a lot of down in the in the gritty you know uh into the dirt of filmmaking and you know whereas we had a revolution a civil war going on in yugoslavia and then we had the dead of winter on ice but this one had big personalities i was dealing with <laughs> i don't know which was harder. or